We began last Sunday talking about the book of 2 Timothy. It's the last letter we have of Paul the Apostle in, in terms of chronology. The last letter we have of his before he died. Written from a Roman prison and written to a young man. And we don't know exactly the age difference, maybe 20 years or so, to a young man named Timothy, pastor of a church in a place called Ephesus that Paul is invested in, that Paul has worked with and for 13 years or so traveled with. Now, kids are a part of our service today, and we're so glad you're with us. So I'm going to do a little bit of review, and, and you're going to take out your notes, if you would, please, and your crayons to follow along. On the very front of your notes, you'll see that there's a, a drawing there of a young Timothy, this young man, when he was just a boy, with his mother and his grandma. Because we learn in this book of 2 Timothy that as he was raised up, his mother and his grandmother imparted to him a love for the Bible, which set a foundation for when he would finally meet Paul and learn about Jesus. So kids, if you'll open to the first page on the inside of your notes, there is the apostle Paul. He's in a prison and he's writing this letter to Timothy. So color those two things, and then I'll get back with you in a minute. Adults, you have your notes. We're in chapter 1, verse 15. Paul's writing to Timothy. He picks up on the thoughts that he had last week that, Timothy, you need to keep enduring. You need to not give up. You're going to have tough times, but, but keep calling on Jesus. Uh, don't be ashamed of me because I'm in prison. Keep serving the Lord. Chapter 1, verse 15. This you know, he writes to Timothy, that all those in Asia have turned away from me, among whom are Phagellus and Hermogenes. Now, when you think of Asia, don't think Japan, don't think India. This is the province of Asia in the Roman Empire, which today is the nation of Turkey. And it's a place where Paul had his most significant uh, evangelistic campaigns, people turning to Christ and churches being established. But here he is at the end of his days in a prison in Rome, and he's writing that all those there that he had loved, that he had invested in, have turned away from him. Now, if there was Christian radio back then, nobody would have been sent to interview Paul wasn't flashy anymore. He wasn't the big news anymore. There were some who thought he was too extreme, too hard to understand, and maybe just too out of touch anymore. All those in Asia, he says, have turned away from me. And he mentions two people by name. Now, that's, that's something to be called out in a letter from Paul. Phagellus and Hermogenes. Now, why these two? Well, we don't know anything else about them besides their name here. And by the way, you don't want your name in the Bible as a, an example of people that have turned away from, from you know, following after Christ. But, but they're there. And maybe he called them out by name because he wanted Timothy to be aware these two guys Keep your eye on them, okay? Because they're kind of well-known and sort of ringleaders in this turning away from Paul. 
Now, he says, all those who are in Asia have turned away. But we're going to see in just a moment, all here doesn't mean all. This is called hyperbole. And hyperbole is a figure of speech we're all familiar with. Are the Broncos playing today? So if we say, the Broncos are going to kill them. We know the Broncos aren't going to kill them. Right? There's going to be no shooting on the field. Nobody's going to die. When It's hyperbole. What we mean by that is they're going to win the game in a big way. And yes. And so when you read the scriptures, you have to look for figures of speech. And this fall during our campaign, we're going to talk about how to recognize some of them. And recognizing hyperbole here, an exaggeration that we all know is an exaggeration, is very easy to recognize it here because of what happens in the very next verse. Verse 16, the Lord grant mercy to the household of Anisar. An Boy, I said that so good before we got together. Onesiphorus. Onesiphorus. We'll say it that way. For he has often refreshed me, and he was not ashamed of my chain. But when he arrived in Rome, he sought me out very zealously and found me. The Lord grant to him that he may find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you know very well how many ways he ministered to me at Ephesus. Do you know where this guy came from? Asia. So he hadn't turned away from Paul. So not all those in Asia. Here's an example of one that hadn't turned away. But what Paul was saying when he said all of those was, man, it feels like all of those. You ever had that happen in life? It feels like no one's left. No one's faithful. So many have turned away from me. But this guy had not. Onesiphorus. What did he do? He searched for Paul in Rome. Wow. There were lots of prisons in Rome. He had to keep searching till he found the prison that Paul was in. And Paul was probably in a place called the Mamertine Prison, which used to be just a hole in the ground, a, a cistern to store water. And he searched and he found him there. And he probably brought him food and clothes and encouragement. The name Onesiphorus means literally help bringer. That's cool. He lived up to his name. He was a help bringer. You have a name. You are a Christian. Do you know what that name means, Christian? It means little Christ. It was a name given to the early believers of Jesus to make fun of them. He thinks he's a little Christ. He thinks he's a, a little Jesus. He thinks he's, he's like that. He's a Christian, they would say, to make fun of them. Yeah, we are to take that name upon ourselves, not out of shame or mockery, but yes, by God's grace, I'm being changed into God's image. Day by day, the Holy Spirit's working in me. I am forgiven of sin. I'm growing to be more like Christ. And yes, I would like to be a little Christ. I would like to be conformed to the image of God's dear son. You, therefore, my son, chapter 2, verse 1, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. I mentioned this last week. This is one of 25 times in either the book of 1 Timothy or the book of 2 Timothy, 25 times that Paul wrote, hey, hang in there. Be strong. Don't give up. 
Stand up when you need to stand up. 25 times in the space of two little letters, he had to encourage him. Don't be afraid. You can do it. Go for it. Now, because of that, some people have said, well, he must have been a very timid person. Maybe. But maybe he was just like a regular guy like you and me who had so many challenges. He's got a pastor of this church in Ephesus. His friend Paul might be killed soon. He's responsible for all of this, that, that it was overwhelming. And he needed encouragement. He needed encouragement. He said, be strong. Now, God is always there to give us strength. Isaiah chapter 40. It says he gives power to the weak. And to those who have no might, he increases strength. So be strong. Latch a hold of God's strength and his grace. Grace, the simplest definition of it is God's unmerited favor in our lives. It's God's strength that shows up best in weak people. And when Paul said, be strong in the grace of the Lord, Paul knew what he was talking about, didn't he? Paul had something wrong with him. He called it a thorn in the flesh. And some people think it was something wrong with his eyes because of some references he made. We're not sure. But he was sick. There was something wrong with him. And so he said in his letters that three times he asked the Lord, God, heal me. Take away this thorn in the flesh. And Paul was a man of faith. And often when he prayed, God just did it right then. So Paul said, Lord, take it away. God didn't. So he said, what's wrong? So second time, Lord, take it away. Nope. Third time, Lord, heal me. Nope. And then that third time he said, Lord, why aren't you healing me? And God said, my grace is sufficient for you. So Paul understood grace. And he says, Timothy, be strong, not in your own strength, but in the grace that's in Christ. And the things, verse 2, that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Thirteen years they were together. I bet you there were a lot of Bible studies going on. What do you think? I bet a lot of times here's, here's Paul teaching Timothy and there's other witnesses around and, and everybody knows Paul's not doing secret teaching. He's doing things in front of other people. Timothy, you've heard so much from me. Here's what I want you to do, Timothy. Take all those things I told you and then turn around and teach other people. Commit those to faithful men and tell them after I teach you this, you turn around and you teach other people also. Now, who is he supposed to be teaching? What kind of men? Commit this to what kind of men? You see it up there on the screen. Faithful men. He doesn't say, that which I've given you, commit to smart men, <laughs> to good-looking men, to famous men, to, to whatever kind of men. He said, I want you to look for one quality, just one quality. Find faithful men. Like Barry Stevens right there in that front row. Find faithful men like Taylor right over there, over there. And I could call out names all around the auditorium. Find faithful men. You don't want to be pouring yourself into people that are going to flake out, okay? Find faithful men and then teach them. 
and then say, bro, now that I taught you, I want you to take somebody else, mentor them, and let's keep it going, keep it going, keep it going, keep it going. And they, they did. Do you know why we have a church today? Because Paul, Timothy, next guy, Next guy, next guy, somebody in the year 300 have found somebody who was faithful and said, let me teach you somebody in the year 1428 found somebody. Hey, let me teach you every nation. Keep passing it on. Keep going faithful men. And now in verse 3, Paul, this is really good. Kids in your notes, we're now on the inside of your notes on the right-hand side. You're going to be coloring there. Paul's saying, I want to encourage Timothy. I want to encourage him, you know, don't give up and be brave and, 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 and keep going and, and impart what I've told him to other people. What's the best way to do that? I'm going to give him three word pictures. I'm going to give him three illustrations of people that he should probably emulate, emulate and keep in the forefront of his mind so that he can do everything he's supposed to do. So he gives them three examples, and we're going to talk about them now. You, therefore, he says, must endure hardship as a good soldier. That's our first illustration, soldier of Jesus Christ. Because no one entangled in warfare, engaged in warfare, rather, entangles himself with the affairs of this life. Why? That he may please him who has enlisted him to be a soldier. Did you see the word must? You want to circle that. You therefore must. It's not a good idea. It's the idea. If you're going to make it, you've got to get a mindset like a soldier. You've got to be willing to be a good soldier. And what that's going to mean is you've got to be willing not to get entangled with the things of this life that are going to stop you from being that good soldier, that good soldier. Now, there are things that a civilian can do that are good things, but a soldier can't do them because if he does them, he gets entangled with life and he can't fight. I've never been a soldier, but I was raised in a military home. My father was a career Marine Corps officer, and a lot was demanded of him as a good soldier. He had to give up some things that Maybe we're bad for him, independence, that kind of thing, be part of a team. But he also had to be willing to give up, to endure hardship by giving up some things that were good for civilians, but not for him. I'm in the third grade, and my dad comes home one day and says, uh, kids, we have three boys in my family. Kids, I'm going. Where are you going, dad? To the store, and you'll be back next week? No, nope. I'm going to a place called Okinawa. And I'm going to be gone for a year. Dad, <laughs> you're going to go for a year? Yeah, I have to go. I've been, I've been assigned to Okinawa. And in the Marine Corps, we can't bring our dependents. It's frontline stuff. So you're going to go with mom, and you're going to go to Little Rock, Arkansas, live with your uncle for a year, but I'll be back. I doubt sincerely if my father said, man, I, the greatest news ever, I'm leaving my family for a year. Oh, here I go. I can't wait. He missed his kids, loved his wife, but he's a soldier. And if I have to endure this hardship for the sake of, of my country, I'm willing to do it. A good soldier 
Paul says, Timothy, keep that in mind. Be willing to do whatever I'm calling you to do. Then he says, and also, if anyone competes in athletics, he is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. Now, I said I was not a soldier, so I had to do my best to really dive into that and, and get that illustration to strike home. But believe it or not, I was an athlete at a certain point in my life. Played football and basketball in high school, and then I played basketball in junior college. Uh, those are some pictures there, number 50. I played there um, for two years. I wasn't a great player, but I did play. I was part of the team. There I am, number 50. Go on, Gary. Block them out. You can get that rebound. Let's go. And then finally, after two years, the local newspaper has this, don't look at the big headline, seven arrested. Go to the top of the newspaper, Gary Beasley Day, set at college. So after two years, they said, okay, great. We'll give you a special day in your honor. My mom and dad are really proud. You know, give me a little thing, put it in the newspaper. So I understand the athlete part. I understand that if you're going to do well at that, you've got to be willing to work when no one looks at you. You've got to be willing to work hard when there's no, uh, nobody around to see. You've got to be willing to do drill after drill after drill after drill. When I first started playing in junior college, I could touch the rim on the basket one time. And the coach told me, Gary, you, you got to learn to jump. This is terrible. So he gave me a drill. Jump up, touch it once. Jump up, touch it twice. Touch it three, four, five. Do these isometric jumping drills. I had a 24-inch vertical leap when I started and a 34 by the time I got done. You have to work, 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 work. And you have to play according to the rules. Timothy, says Paul, you make sure you don't think you're a special character. <laughs> you play according to the rules. Do you have a rule book with you? The rule book for Christianity? There's one right over there. It's called a Bible. There it is. There it's good. So you play according to the rules. Now, I have met Christians who think somehow they don't have to play according to the rules. You ever met them? It's like, well, I, I love God. God loves me. He understands. I'm a special person. Yes, this is sin, but God understands for me my situation is different. I can take shortcuts. I can do it this way. Paul says, hey, never forget, you have to play according to the rules. Then he said, the hardworking farmer must be the first to partake in the crops. You know, of these three the soldier, the athlete, and the farmer. Who has the most glamour of the three? <laughs> it's not the farmer. I mean, there probably is a farmer hall of fame someplace, I imagine Iowa, but I'm not thinking they're getting like millions of people coming to visit the farmer hall of fame. And we don't know who won the award last year for the most valuable farmer in America. But Paul says, like that guy who works in, 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 uh, away from the crowds, away from the popularity, who has to get up early and milk the cow when it's dark and, and nobody sees, who has to all day work, I want you to remember that, Timothy. You have to be that hard-working farmer. And, and you have to be willing to first partake 
of the crops. You know what that means? If you're going to feed it to somebody, Timothy, you eat it first. Don't go around trying to feed stuff to people you're not willing to eat and you haven't eaten. That doesn't mean that every time Timothy got up to preach, he had to be, uh, you know, had to arrive at perfection in some area that he was preaching about. But it means he's willing to eat of it. (laughs) He's trying. He's taking steps. He's saying, boy, this is convicting me as well. So, beloved, I want you to get three images in your mind as you serve the Lord Jesus. I want you to be a good soldier. Good soldier. Be willing to go through hard times. I want you to be an athlete who's willing to train but willing to play by the rules. And I want you to be that hard-working farmer. And when you this week have challenges in life and it it seems difficult to be a Christian, bring those three to your mind. Hard-working farmer, playing by the rule athlete, and good soldier. Lord, I'm praying that that could be me. Consider what I say, verse 7, and may the Lord give you understanding in all things. So let's do that. Let's consider what we just read, and may the Lord give us understanding in those examples. What I see with all three of those people, the soldier, the farmer, the athlete, is this. All of them have to have great perseverance. The soldier who stops fighting... Before the battle's finished, never sees victory. The athlete who stops running before the race is over, never wins. And the farmer who stops working before the harvest is complete, never gets the crops. So, Timothy, remember these illustrations. But most of all, verse 8, remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel. Timothy, remember, keep in the forefront of your mind, keep in the forefront of your preaching two things, who Jesus was and what Jesus did. Jesus was the Messiah. He was from the seed of David. Don't forget who he was. And never forget, never stop talking about what he did, raised from the dead. And Paul said, according to my gospel, Well, how's this my gospel? Because he believed it, and he taught it. And the gospel is for everybody, but I pray we could make it my gospel, that I believe it, and I preach it, and I teach it as well. For which, for the gospel, verse 9, I suffer trouble as an evildoer, even to the point of chains. But the word of God is not chained. What did the gospel bring, Paul? Life of glamour? Money? Fame? Lots of followers? It brought him lots of adventure. Yes, it did. There's nothing boring about being a Christian. (laughs) There's a lot of stuff about being a Christian, but it's not boring. I can tell you that. It's an adventure. But it brought him a lot of suffering. And in our modern world we live in, it's hard to imagine what, you know, suffering. But there has to be a willingness. If it should happen, if society should become the way that it seems like it's going, a willingness to suffer. Now, the whole time he's saying this, he has a chain, either on his hand or on his foot. 
And he is chained to a soldier sitting right there whose job is to make sure he doesn't go anywhere. And so he's writing, looking at this soldier, looking at his chains, and he's saying, I'm in chains, but the word of God is not in chains. The Bible has been burned. It has been banned. It has been mocked. It has been twisted. And it has been ignored for 2,000 years. But the word of the Lord still stands. The word of the Lord stands forever. No government, no religious authority, no skeptic, no scientist, no philosopher, and no book burner has ever succeeded in chaining the Word of God, and they never will. Matter of fact, the only people who can really not totally chain the Word of God, but for a time can, are those who are supposed to be friends of the Word of God, who don't teach it like they should. Instead, they kind of get up and do a self-help message on a Sunday morning, sprinkle in a little verse here and there. And in a sense, that's chaining the Word of God. But God will always raise up new preachers. He'll always raise up people who believe it, preach it, teach it, and impart it. And this fall, did we already talk about this? This fall, October? Uh, we're going to be doing your Bible and you, and we're going to talk about this amazing book. And by the time we are done, you're going to go like, ah, the Bible. Wow, how can I neglect that book? Therefore, I endure all things for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Now, you probably were thinking, well, Paul's going to say, I endure all things for the sake of God. And yes, he was enduring this prison for the sake of God. But he says he's enduring it for the sake of you and me and all who God is drawing to himself, the elect, the Christians. He's enduring this so that you and I, 2,000 years later, can be here loving Jesus. Amen? Worship team, would you please return? We're going to read this next section together. You saw in the little video, the introduction video, that this next part of Paul's letter was probably a poem, a well-known poem. It might have been the lyrics of a well-known song. And you can tell that by the Greek that it's written in. It has a, a cadence to it uh, that you read and you go, oh, this is probably a song or, or he's quoting from some kind of poem. And he's quoting from it because it was well known in that day. Would you say it out loud with me? It's verse 11 through verse 13. You ready? This is a faithful saying. For if we died with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure, he shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. Let's pray together.